passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. All right, now, if you guys saw my uh, weekly sermon preview, you got a chance to see me learning pickleball. And I got a chance to learn it from two guys named Jason. And so it's sort of like repeating yourself when you talk to them all the time. And they have the same name. But I wasn't just repeating myself to them. I mean, they were repeating themselves to me because for me to learn pickleball took a lot of repetition. And if you're a parent, you know that teaching things to your kids takes a lot of repetition because it's sometimes things are hard to get right. Things are hard to absorb. And I don't know if you realize it, but sometimes in the Bible, it repeats itself. It tells the same kind of story like more than once. When the Bible repeats itself, it's because it's trying to teach us something that typically we don't get the first time. That's what we have going on this morning. We're in 1 Samuel 26, and as we study it, it's going to sound very similar to 1 Samuel chapter 24. We just studied that two weeks ago. Now, remember 1 Samuel 24. That was the time where Saul decided to take a little potty break in the cave, and he thought he was super safe. He had 3,000 soldiers guarding the entrance, where he was completely wrong, because actually David and his men were hiding in that very same cave. David could easily have taken him out, but he chose to respect the Lord's anointed and not take out Saul. Then we had chapter 25, we studied last week, with Nabal where David learned that God is very much capable of handling vengeance. God is very capable of handling justice. David can leave justice and vengeance in God's hands, because God took out Nabal. David didn't have to do it. Now when we come to chapter 26, what we find is we're going to have David with another opportunity to take out King Saul. Another opportunity for revenge. Will God, or will David do it? See, here's one of the big lessons of this chapter. No matter how much we want revenge, no matter how deserving people seem to be of receiving revenge, now, no matter how irritating they are, or how unteachable they seem, even after you've shown them kindness and forgiveness again and again, and they still don't seem to change, we still leave justice and vengeance in God's hands. We don't take it into our hands. And the reason the Bible, you know, the, the reason the Bible teaches this a second time, two chapters later, is because, folks, isn't this a very hard lesson to learn? Two weeks ago, we talked about leave vengeance in God's hands, and all of us go, yep, yep, I can do that. But here we are, we've said, well, I, I forgave the person, I was kind to the person, I was gracious to the person, but they didn't change. Now I want to take it back in my hands. And the answer is nope. We still leave it in God's hands anyway. And that's the message of this chapter. 
So for those of you who like action, the first half of this chapter has the action. Uh, the second half of this chapter has sort of the discussion about the action. And so that's where you get most of the lessons. But we're going to go ahead and dive right in because I'm an action-oriented guy. So let's start with the action. That's the fun stuff. We begin on the top of your outline where David spares Saul again. And you're going to see a lot of deja vu, some of the stuff that's really similar to chapter 24. You'll see what I mean right away. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakla, which is on the east of the Jeshimon? Now, those of you who are really sharp at this, you're going to go, Wait a minute, didn't we read that two chapters before this? Let's go back. It's actually three chapters when we read it. It says this. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish on the hill of Hakla, which is south of Jeshimon? Oh, this is the same thing all over again. You remember what happened in chapter 23. The Ziphites went and informed Saul that David was hiding on this hill named Hakla. Saul sent his 3,000 troops. They were about ready to surround the mountain. They're going to cut David off from escape. Remember that pincer move they were trying to do? But then God orchestrated it that at the last minute, the Philistines attacked the land, and Saul had to quickly go and retreat. And so David ended up escaping. It's the same thing all over again. David is hiding on the same hill, on the hill named Hakala. The Ziphites are once again informing Saul. The difference is the first time he was hiding, if you read, on the south side of the hill, this time he's hiding on the east side of the hill. Next to this hill is an area called the Jeshimon, which we read it and we're like, so what? Who cares? Well, here's a little bit of Hebrew helps. Jeshimon in Hebrew means the wilderness. And we've been through this before. The wilderness in Judea is not trees and rivers and streams. It's a barren desert. Let me show you a picture of the Jeshimon. That's what the Jeshimon looks like. It's desert. It is hills. It is dry. So what we know at this point is David... He is living on the outskirts of society. He's living in the desert area, hiding out on this hill. Now, while things sound familiar between chapter 24 and chapter 26 so far, here's the big difference. Remember how things ended in chapter 24? Where David spared Saul's life in the cave. David cut off the corner of his robe and showed it to him. And then David bowed to the king and showed great respect to the king. And Saul responded with tears. And Saul said, you've never been my enemy. I should not be pursuing you. All kinds of great ad admitting. And then Saul even publicly acknowledged that David would be the next king. The one thing that Saul has been fighting for so long. He acknowledged this publicly. So what should happen at this point, when the Ziphites come to Saul and say, hey, we found David's hiding spot, 
Saul should respond and say, well, thanks, but no thanks. David and I are at peace. We've sort of, we're not fighting anymore. I don't need this information. You know, let's move on. You leave him alone, I'll leave him alone. That's what should happen. But that's, as we're going to see, not what happened. You see, this information from the Ziphites coming to Saul is actually a test. It's a test of Saul to find out if those words that he said to David two chapters ago about forgiving him and being at peace with him are true or not. The issue is, were Saul's words just mere empty repentance or were they genuine repentance? We all know there's a difference, isn't there? Genuine repentance comes from the heart. Genuine repentance is sorry not just for what you did, but for the sin you've done to God. Genuine repentance has actions that at least attempt to change the outcome of doing the same thing all over again. Empty repentance is not that way. Empty repentance is just words, but you go right back to doing the same thing and don't even try to stop. And here's what we find out here. There is a difference between empty repentance and genuine repentance. Empty repentance comes with a change of heart and making different choices. So, the question is, what kind of salt repentance did Saul have in chapter 24? Let's find out. So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. It immediately becomes apparent that Saul hadn't changed one bit. As soon as he had the opportunity to go back to hunting David and trying to kill David, he went right back at it again. Saul completely broke his promise to David. In fact, you notice he even brings the exact same number of troops as he had last time. 3,000 soldiers in chapter 24, 3,000 soldiers in chapter 26. You would think that after all of this time of trying to get David, after finding that it's been over a dozen times God has foiled his attempts to take David's life, you'd think by now he'd start to learn that this is not going to work out once again. But you know how people are like Saul. <laughs> they just don't seem to be able to learn a lesson. Getting a lesson into their head is about as effective as shooting a bullet at a rock. I mean, it just doesn't seem to penetrate. That's this guy. You know already this is not going to work out in the end. Saul is stubborn and will not change. Then we read, And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakla, which is beside the road on the east of the Jeshimon. Saul and his huge group of 3,000 soldiers camp right there at the base of the hill of Hakla. So much for an element of surprise. <laughs> That's pretty much given away if someone's hiding on the hill and 3,000 soldiers camp at the base of the hill. Interestingly, by the way, when they arrive, God, I love the way God works this out. Guess who's not on the hill? David. He's not there. 
Actually, we find out he was in the Jeshimon. He was in the desert at the time they arrived. Now, was he out on a hunting trip? Was he out camping? I really don't know. But God timed it perfectly that he wasn't there when they came. Then they realize that David's not on the hill. So they start to go into the desert to look for him. And all David did was just keep retreating further back into the desert to avoid them. That's what we read. But David remained in the wilderness. And when he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. So they can't find David. But David, because of their large numbers, has no problem finding them. And David says, what is going on? I thought we had peace between us. Why is Saul sending an army out? Is it here to get me? And we read this. So David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Ah, Saul is up to his old tricks again. He's hunting me. He wants to get rid of me. This guy never changes. I was so kind to him at the cave but it didn't make a bit of difference. We read this. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, with Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. At this point, it must have been evening. Because we see Saul and his army were getting ready to bed down for the night. Earlier I showed you the picture of the Jeshimon wilderness with all those hills in it. What apparently what David had done is gone to the top of one of those hills, close enough to Saul's army. He peered over the hill and he could look at the army and even identify people. And he can see that Saul was in the center of the army with Abner, the commander, right next to him. So he had a pretty good assessment of the situation. Saul and his 3,000 men decided it's time to go to sleep when the sun goes down. But David, it's time to get busy. Now, I want you to think about this. Put yourself in David's shoes. It's painfully obvious to him that all of the kindness he showed to Saul the sparing of his life in the cave. All of the reverence he's shown to Saul has made absolutely no difference. Hasn't changed his heart one bit. What would you want to do at this time? Most of us operate in a three strikes policy. I forgive you once, I forgive you twice, but the third time you've got it coming. Saul is way beyond three strikes. Most of us would say, this is the time finally to put revenge in my hands. Let's see what David decides to do. David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zerui, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. A little bit of background on these guys. Uh, Himelech, the, the Hittite, this is the only time we see him mentioned in Scripture. Not a big character. But he is one of the men who are part of David's fighting force. Interestingly, he's a Hittite. He's not an Israelite. He's an immigrant. 
He's a foreigner living in a foreign land. In fact, if we go into 2 Samuel later on in this winter, we're going to see that David actually has a number of foreigners in his mighty men who fight for him. Interesting how God uses immigrants in an uh, unexpected way here, isn't it? Now, the other person we are introduced to is a guy named Abishai. He's the son of Zerui. Zerui is David's sister. Zerui has three sons, Abishai, Ashael, and Joab. These three people will begin to play a very big role. Uh, they are extremely loyal to Saul. Uh, they also have an extreme thirst for blood. We're going to see a lot of them in 2 Samuel. And David will actually become sort of sick of their fact that they want to kill everybody. But this is the beginning when we're introduced to the first one, Abishai. You want to come down and go right into the camp with me? Here's David's plan. Maybe he's going to put a hoodie on. You know, and pull it over his head and pull the strings tight. Under cover of darkness, he and Ashael are going to walk right into the camp. Right all the way to Saul. Sort of tiptoeing in the moonlight over hundreds of soldiers. Seeing if they can get into the absolute center. This is really a crazy high risk plan. That's the kind of stuff that David likes to do. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. So under a cover of darkness, possibly with his hoodie over his head, he tiptoes through the, over the soldiers and ends up in the center of the, the camp. And Saul is easy to recognize because of that spear. David knows that spear. Three times Saul had tried to use that spear to kill him. Now I want you to think of the deja vu going on here. Two chapters earlier, remember Saul took his little potty break in the cave thought he was safe because he had 3,000 soldiers guarding the front entrance of the cave. <laughs> Boy, was he wrong. Saul is bedding down for the night. He thinks he's safe because he has 3,000 soldiers around him. Boy, is he wrong once again. Now, Abishai whispers in David's ear what I think is the obvious. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. This is another deja vu moment from two chapters before. Isn't this exactly what David's men whispered in his ear when he was in the cave? When Saul was taking a potty break? Ah, oh, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. This is your time finally to take him out. Finally to get revenge. Except Abishai spins this a little differently. In the cave, they had told David to take revenge, but he didn't. So Abishai doesn't want to risk David again. He says this, Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. David, you might not do it, but I will. David, think of the poetic justice. The same spear that he tried to kill you with 
three times will be the spear that I will use to kill him. And he missed, but I won't. Now, we know that all of David's kindness, all of David's honoring of the king, all of his goodness to the king has not made one bit of difference. That his repentance prior to this was all just merely empty words. Don't you think this is finally David's chance to get the revenge he deserves? Is this moment a moment that reveals the the fact that Saul is unchangeable and Saul has failed the test? Or is this moment actually a test for David? In the last chapter, he learned from Nabal that God is completely capable of carrying out justice. God took care of the problem with Nabal on his own. David didn't have to do a thing but leave it in God's hands. Will David learn that lesson from the last chapter? Or here, under even more frustrating circumstances, will he take it back into his hands and try and eliminate Saul because he is so stubborn and unchangeable? Honestly, most of us would have followed Abishai's suggestions. True? Let's see what David does. David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David once again decided to spare Saul's life. It was not because he was still holding out hope that Saul would somehow change. It was because of the fact that God had put Saul into the kingship. And even with Saul was stubborn, even with Saul was unchangeable, even with Saul was a really wicked guy, it was still David's job to respect him, not to murder him. God put Saul into office, and God would be the one to take Saul out of office. David's job is to respect the king, not eliminate the king. And God can do this. As he learned in the last chapter, God is fully capable of handing out justice. And David then sort of uses his imagination about how God will take care of Saul. And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he'll go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put my hand against the Lord's anointed. David says, God will take out Saul in his time and in his way. That's not my job to take him out. My job is to respect and honor the king, even though he's a completely irritable, unchanging, unteachable king. I'm still to respect and honor him. Now, there's a couple applications I'd like to bring in here. Let me at least give you, I'll give you one for now. If God allows us to get something we want, but it involves getting it sinfully, that is a test from God. It's not an opportunity given to us by God. Maybe you're in school, and you're studying for a test, 
and it's a really hard test. And your friends have a copy of last year's final exam, and everyone's passing it around. You know it's the wrong thing to do, but everyone's passing it around, and everyone's going to get a good grade. And you know that you know, if you don't look at that exam, you're going to get a bad grade. An opportunity to look at that test is not an opportunity given to you from God. That is a test given to you by God to see will you do the right thing or will you do get the right thing the wrong way. Now, David says to Abishai, we're not going to take Saul's life, but we are going to take something. And here's what they take. Now, but now take the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. Interesting, notice this. He says to Abishai to get the spear and the jar of water, but then notice what we read. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. I don't know if this is true, but I think David instantly rethought about this. I don't even trust Abishai to let him have that spear in his hands. I'm going to take it myself. Then we read this. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. That had always reminded, you know, puzzled me. How is it that David could crawl over hundreds of soldiers and nobody would get awake? How is it that David and Abishai could have a whispering argument right next to Saul, asleep in the camp, and yet nobody get up. And the answer is because God put everybody in a deep sleep and kept them in a deep sleep. And here's where there's an interesting application for our life. This is how God shows up. He often shows up in little ways in our lives and behind the scenes in our lives. For instance, look at this is the application point. When we face difficult times, look for little ways that God helps and protects. We've seen this consistently throughout this book. Remember two chapters ago when David was about ready to be surrounded by Saul's army and it just happened that the Philistines attacked at just the right time that Saul had a retreat. Fortuitous circumstances or God showing up to protect his king. Or in this case, God showed up and kept everybody in a deep sleep. Now you wonder, how does God show up in our lives? Folks, he shows up in little ways and behind-the-scene ways to protect us, love us, and care for us. Maybe you go to the doctor. The doctor says, you know, it's a boy, it's a good thing you came in when you did because if you had come in two months after this, I don't think we could be able to treat this. Who had you show up just on the right time? God did. Showing up in your life in little ways, in perfect timing, just ordering things. Those are how God shows up in our lives, just like God is showing up in David's life. God is not taking David out of the desert, is he? He's supporting and carrying David as he has to struggle through the desert. You see how God shows up? That's how he does it for us. Another application point I think it's important we pick up at this. 
as we've read this. Like David, we must respect those God puts in positions of authority over us, even if we disagree with them. God puts leaders in positions of leadership for a purpose, and he puts them there at least for now. Maybe not forever, but at least for now. And even if they're messed up leaders like Saul, unteachable, unchanging leaders like Saul, our job is to respect them, not to undermine them, or not to kill them. The scriptures say this in Exodus 22:28: You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. Oh boy, we have a lot to learn from in that one, don't we? Or uh, how about Romans 13.1? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Paul wrote this. Guess who's on the throne? Nero. God is the one who had Nero on the throne, at least for now. And as Christians, our job is to respect the leaders that God had put over us not to undermine them. Or 1 Peter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That as Christians we should not be known for under undermining the leaders in our country and doing evil things in our country. We should be known for doing good in our country. And by the way, the good part is we get a chance to vote every once in a while, right? And then we can express our will in a very legitimate way. But our job is to be known for showing mercy, to be known for showing forgiveness, to be known for showing grace, for known for showing kindness, not for showing evil, not for trying to get revenge. Too many of us are following Rambo instead of Jesus. Remember Rambo? I was nice the first time. I was I was good to him I, I, for a while, but they've taken it too far. They drew first blood, so now it's my chance to get even. That's Rambo. That's not Jesus. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life leaves vengeance in God's hands. It's not for us to repay. Uh, another thought for you. David fought the temptation for revenge by turning his thoughts to God's justice and the lessons he learned from Nabal. When we are tempted to carry out revenge, we need to do the same. When we don't carry out revenge, that's not saying there is going to be no justice. It's just saying we're leaving God take care of it instead of us. And this is why. When we wait for God's solution to injustice, rather than forcing our own solution, it always turns out better. This actually comes from the last chapter. If you were with us last week, you'll understand this. Remember David was planning on carrying out his form of justice by killing Nabal, killing all the males in his household. And then he even says at one point when he meets Abigail on the road, and I would have killed you also probably. 
But thankfully he didn't do that. He left justice in God's hand. God killed Nabal. And look how it turned out. David ended up with a wife. Nabal's widow, Abigail, a very wise, a very discerning woman, a woman that he needed in his life to speak God's truth into his world. He's saying, you know what? It turned out a lot better when I left justice in God's hands than when I carried out my own plan and carried out justice in my hands. Folks, it's the truth. When we leave justice in God's hands, when God carries out justice, it'll always be better than any time we carry out revenge. It's true. So why carry out revenge? All we're going to do is make it worse. God can make it better. Next thing we see is this. David was protecting Saul's life, not trying to take it. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. Smart guy, gets away from Saul. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? Now Abner is the commander of the army. He's Saul's right-hand man. And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? And why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die. Because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is, and the jar of water that was at his head. David begins by giving Abner a really hard time. Hey buddy, you're not doing your job. You're supposed to be the bodyguard to the king, and you're over there sleeping. Somebody came into the camp intending to kill the king, and you were asleep. Now, if the Secret Service agents outside of the president's door fell asleep while on duty, how long would they last? Yeah, in our society, they'd be fired, but in most societies, that's capital offense. You would lose your life for that. And here's what David is saying. Abner, you should use your life because you fell asleep on the job. You know who protected the king's life tonight? It was me. The guy who was with me wanted to kill King Saul. I protected King Saul. You're out here trying to kill me, yet I'm the one protecting the king, and you're the one sleeping on the job and not protecting the king at all. So David, not Abner, was the one who protected Saul that night. And then we read this. And Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And I just want you to notice does Saul seem to have hostility in his voice towards David at this point? No. My son, David, there's love, there's affection. This is important. And David said, it is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, well, why does my lord pursue his servant? What have I done? What evil is in my hand? Haven't we been through this before? Why are you chasing me? And then here's where we get some really interesting stuff. 
Now, therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. David gives two options for why he is being pursued again. Either the Lord has, driven, has um, stirred him up, which, by the way, just so you know, one of the things the Lord does to punish people who are persisting in sin is he stirs them up to follow foolish and purposeless desires or passions. They waste their life. Sometimes God leads people into pointless or wicked pursuits as judgment for persistent sin. Romans 1, 28 says this, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And David says, if the reason you're chasing me, which is a waste of your time, is because of your sin, go to the temple, make an offering, get right with God. You know, for us it would be call out to Jesus and you know, maybe that'll take care of it. But then he gives a second option, which by the way, I think this is actually what's happening. And it's this, the friends we keep around us can lead us to sinful choices. He said, if it is men who have stirred you up against me, may they be cursed by the Lord. Now I'm going to tell you, I'm reading between the lines on this one. I have not seen this written in anywhere by any commentary. So I may be wrong, but I think I may be right. Let me explain this to you. We've seen that King Saul is not a strong leader. He's a very highly impressionable leader, isn't he? He's always looking to other people for ideas. Saul's words to David, he doesn't hate David. He has affection for David. If he doesn't hate David, why is he pursuing David? Who put it into Saul's head that he has to chase David and get rid of him? And I'll tell you who I think it is. It's Saul's cabinet. It's the people he has surrounded himself with. Whose idea do you think it was that they go on an expedition and try and kill David again after Saul has already made peace with him? Abner. It's Abner's idea. Why do you think David begins this by pointing out Abner's disloyalty to the king? Saul has already admitted publicly David will be king next. Who doesn't want David to be king next? Who stands to lose their position of authority when David takes power? Abner. Abner and his cabinet folks are running a shadow government, manipulating King Saul, getting him to do what they want him to do. This is why, David says, these people are trying to run me out of the country and get me to serve other gods. This is why David 
and Saul, even though they're at peace, David is forced to live alone in the desert with his men because Saul's cabinet has been undermining David. Here's the lesson, folks. We need to be careful who we keep around us as our friends. Because even when we don't realize it, they can be strongly influential on us, and they can lead us in the wrong way. The scripture says this, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. This is what's gone on with Saul. Abner and the cabinet are leading him back into hostility with David even after he's proclaimed peace with David. Bad company. We read this. Now therefore let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who wants a partridge in the mountains. It's like, I'm not leaving the country. I'm going to stay faithful to God. Why are you chasing me? I'm just a little defenseless person against you. Now we see Saul had superficial repentance. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I've acted foolishly. I've made a great mistake. Yes, you're right, Saul. You did act foolishly. You did act sinfully. Your friends led you astray. Now, here where it's interesting, he says, I proclaim peace with you. Everyone else has been driving you out, David. I want you to return to me, for I will do you no harm. This is David's opportunity to return with King Saul. But will he take it? And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come and take it. David chose not to take Saul up on his offer. Here's why. There is a difference between words of repentance and restoring trust, isn't there? So far, every single time we've seen Saul's words have been empty repentance, not genuine repentance. David doesn't trust him. But there is someone that David trusts. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. You know, I can't trust you, Saul, but I'll tell you who I can trust. I can trust God. When I do what is right, I've learned this, and I place my faith in God. God always rewards people who do what is right when they place their faith and trust in him. God is the one who's going to deliver me out of all my troubles, not you. God is going to be faithful to me as long as I'm faithful to him and I do the right thing. And here's a wonderful principle that applies to us today. It's simply this. It's always right to do what is right 
God always rewards us when we do the right thing. We place our faith in God to handle the results. That's exactly where David was at. Now it finishes with this. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things. You will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Now, this morning, there was a lot of application I gave you, but I'm just going to remind you of three as we close. They are this. Number one, it's always right to do what is right. God always rewards us when we do the right thing and place our faith in God to handle the results. That's what David has learned. Number two, be careful whom we have as friends. The friends we keep around us can lead us to good choices or to sinful ones. That's Abner next to Saul. And number three, letting God handle injustices in our life always gives a better result than forcing our own solutions and getting revenge. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the fact that uh, David had learned that he can trust his anger, his frustration, he can the need to take revenge into your hands. He didn't have to take it in his own. And then when he trusted you to take care of the injustices in life, you would always have a better solution than anything he would ever come up with. Thank you that he learned that when he would do the right thing and he'd place his faith and trust in you, no matter how difficult or weird the outcome looked, you would always protect him and carry him through. And I pray the same for us, Lord. May we be people committed to doing the right thing to honoring you, placing our faith and trust in you, Jesus, knowing that you will work out and take care of the results and reward your people as we follow you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.